Welcome to Incredible Healthcare Leaders, a podcast where we interview the healthcare industry's key players on topics like current events, their successes, and their failures. I'm your host, Imana Bouzaid. I'm the CEO of Incredible Health, the fastest growing career marketplace for healthcare workers in the US, and the only marketplace technology that helps hospitals and health systems hire permanent, experienced nurses in 20 days or less. So with me today is Mark Boom, the CEO of Houston Methodist, a 1,000-bed hospital network that is consistently ranked among the country's best by U.S. News & World Report. And it's also been named by Fortune as one of America's 100 best companies to work for. So Mark, like most hospital executives, you've had a very, very busy last year. The last 12 months, and especially the last few months in particular, were very busy in Texas specifically. I'd love to just dive in to some of the some of the challenges and some of the issues that you, you've been facing while running Houston Methodist in the last few months. In mid-February 2021, Texas experienced some very severe storms where both electricity and water was impacted. Uh, what was it like on the ground at Houston Methodist? Well, thanks. It's great to be here today. And, and uh, yeah, it was it was a, uh, an interesting time, to say the least, you know, layered on top of COVID uh, for a year, a bunch of tired people. You know, we dealt with a, a false alarm, but still, nonetheless, took a lot of timing and, and preparing and everything else in the summer with a hurricane. And then here came this freeze, you know, which we all expected to be a challenge, but no one really expected it to create the challenges that it did. You know, we were ready for the fact that, you know, Houston is, you know, sort of woefully unprepared for any sort of freezing rain or, or snow or any, you know, frozen precipitation of any sort. You know, we just never have it. You know, I've seen it like five times in my life. And so, you know, we just know that the city will sort of shut down, right? So we're all prepared for those kinds of things, get people in and out to work and, you know, write out recovery teams, all those kinds of things. But what people weren't really expecting was the entire grid to shut down. And that's what, of course, caused so much difficulty for us. Fortunately, you know, we prepare for that. We prepare that for that, whether that's a hurricane or, you know, whether that's some other uh, occurrence. So what ended up happening is kind of over the, the course of this several day freeze. And that was the other very unique thing is usually if we have a bad freeze, it's over in 24 hours and it warms back up. And if you have a little precipitation, it goes away. In this case, it just stayed deeply cold. And uh, we just watched, um, you know, neighborhood after neighborhood after neighborhood lose power. And ultimately, our hospitals uh, being threatened with that. Although, to be honest, you know, power doesn't worry us that much. Power generation is pretty straightforward. We do that in lots of disasters. You know, it becomes harder when you do several days, but when you do hours at a time or a couple of days at a time, it's, it's, it's honestly, you know, not ideal by any stretch, but it's, it's very doable. But what has been a challenge in some previous disasters and most certainly was, and this was water. And what happened was basically all of the water pumping capacity in the city went down for a variety of reasons. A lot of it was power related. They lost pumping stations from power, but a lot of it was burst pipe related. And, you know, the fact that basically they didn't have normal pressures in the system. We have eight hospitals, about 2,300 beds in total. Uh, the flagship hospital is about 1,000 beds, um, and it did fine. It, it lost a little water pressure. But two of our community hospitals, um, both of them, you know, 200 plus bed hospitals, two to 300 bed hospitals, completely lost water. Um, so all supply from the city ceased completely in one of them for 72 hours and the other for 48 hours. So that's a big challenge, obviously, running a hospital. All of our hospitals have tanks, and so there's some capacity for, for hours of supply, but there's not capacity for days of supply. Honestly, that's something we're re-looking at now. 
Um, but so they ended up having to get pretty creative, whether it was bringing trucks in, whether in one case, uh, just to flush some toilets, uh, you know, they basically said, hey, we can collect some of the rainwater that's now coming down after it was a little uh, warmer and we got some rain. Uh, and they literally rigged up a, a system to bring water in and, and flush the toilets. But we got through it, but uh, it most certainly was a challenge. So one topic that's been on the mind of probably every hospital executive in the country is dealing with COVID, right? So uh, at, as this uh, winter storm in Texas was happening, affecting water and electricity for your health system, it was like the tail end of the second surge of COVID, you know, one of our many surges that we had here in the U.S. And at that point, your, your staff, your, cl- your clinical staff in particular, is, is, is giving like, they're already at like 110%, right? And, uh, you know, fatigue's probably setting in. They're working pretty, very long hours. And then you have this additional crisis layered on top. So how, how did you think about, uh, you know, keeping your team motivated during one prolonged crisis and uh, layered on top of that a second, a second crisis that was happening? Yeah, that's a great question. And it's tough. And, and I will tell you, uh, I am, you know, in, in the looking for silver linings, I guess, or the bright points. I am so glad this didn't happen a month before, you know, because a month before we were on this big upswing going into the third major surge we've seen in Houston. Put that in perspective, uh, we were hitting, you know, probably a month before about 35 plus percent of our beds were being used for patients with COVID. But by the time this freeze hit, we were well on the downtick. Um, we knew we were on the downtick. You could see that happening. You saw vaccines picking up. So at least the sort of morale and psyche was a little different than in that moment when, you know, you're still seeing things go up and say, when will this end and when will this turn? But nonetheless, it, it most certainly felt like, oh my goodness, one more thing. How are we going to handle just one more thing? And I got to give it to our staff. They are incredibly resilient. Um, they know they're there for the patients and they stepped up and they did the right thing. But that being said, they're talking to their husbands or they're talking to their wives or their loved ones at home, you know, who basically are sitting there saying, well, a pipe just burst. We've now got a mess all over the floor, et cetera, et cetera. And so we ended up out of about 26,000 employees, we put together a relief fund for people who'd had damage. We had about 3,800 people apply for um, relief. And that was almost all, uh, you know, uh, broken pipes and, and damage in homes as a result. That's pretty amazing. I mean, if you think about it, that's like 15% of our population had that kind of damage at home. So that was really difficult. Um, we've done a lot of things to focus on, you know, morale, keeping people boosted up, focusing on, you know, how do we tend to people's um, stresses, people's uh, mental health during all of this, people's uh, resiliency, and uh, happy to chat about those, but uh, that's a big focus for us. Let's chat about that, because my, my next question was going to be around, you know, what, what advice do you have for leaders that, that are dealing with compounding crises and, and trying to keep their teams motivated? Well, um, you know, from the beginning, we recognized, I mean, beginning of COVID, we recognized we were running a big, big, long marathon. So, uh, you know, obviously that marathon kept getting stretched out on us. You know, everybody thought maybe it'd be ending a little sooner than it has. Um, and now, thankfully, I think the, you know, we're seeing some end in sight. But so from the beginning, we've really worked with people to say, hey, we all have to pace ourselves. We have to manage ourselves. We have to find ways to unwind. Um, you know, some of those things are, are very formalized programs and some of them are very informal along the way. We are a uh, spiritually based hospital. We are you know, faith based hospital with uh, being Houston Methodist, of course, uh, and we have a, a very strong value set. And so really applying those values and applying 
Um, what we know as healthcare providers, as a faith-based institution to support people has been a huge part of what's happened. So from our chaplains to our human resources, to employee assistance programs, much has been there and with our physicians and our psychiatry department and others, much has been there throughout the entire year for support. Some of that support is people have to know you have their back, right? They have to know that they are protected. They have to know they are safe. They have to know that the institution is there behind them every step of the way. And so we've been very careful in messaging that for the entire time and, you know, not just messaging, but delivering on that. So, you know, for example, in the depths of COVID, when we were losing $120 million in a month, I mean, $30 million a week back in last April timeframe, you know, many institutions were cutting pay, they were furloughing people, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And we sat there and said, you know, the reason we have a strong balance sheet and with our employees so central to taking care of patients who are at the center of everything we do, um, we need our employees. We're going to need them for a long time. And this is why we have a strong balance sheet and uh, worked with our board and we backstopped everybody completely. We, we, we messaged, we can't do this forever, but we can do this, you know, for quite a bit of time. And so we messaged really all the way through July that we would be backstopped. And what that meant was nobody had to use PTO to cover hours they weren't getting filled. They got paid for those hours, even if they couldn't come in, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. No furloughs, no layoffs, no pay cuts. That has proven to be huge because of course, you know, in the fall then, as we saw this huge surge, many institutions were dealing with the fact that they had laid off some people, they'd furloughed some people, their people were tired and their people were a little mad because they'd not been paid and all those different things. We didn't have any of that. And that made a huge difference, but it also sent a, powerful message that we've got your back along with all the safety and the PPE and everything else we did. And so every step of the way being very intentional and purposeful with how we do that. The other things sometimes are, are very soft. And so working with the community, um, I, you know, God bless Papa John's pizza in Houston. I mean, their, their leader called me up and said, Hey, we ran a promotion, buy one, get one free for a healthcare worker. Can I get you some pizzas? And I said, well, I got a lot of people and I got eight hospitals. He said, no problem. I have 13,000 pizzas to give away. You know, I mean, something like that, you know, and literally all year long, we keep getting pizzas. And I just use that as an example, but we've had so many uh, restaurants and people do those kinds of things back, you know, particularly in the height of COVID people would see and deliver food and they'd know they were helping the restaurant industry and helping the healthcare industry kind of at the same time. And donors would come in and say, I'm going to just buy lunch for a swath of employees or for some of the COVID units or whatever else. And then internally, one of the things that was really fun, we actually took all of our administrative areas and every one of them adopted a unit. And so if you worked, let's say in an accounting area, you might've adopted the medical intensive care unit. And it was up to you, how are you going to adopt these folks? And, you know, it was writing cards, it was delivering goodies, it was video messages, it was putting up a, you know, a, 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 a board of support, all these different things that were done. And, and all of those together really helped keep people's morale up. But all of that being said, you can't do that ad infinitum. And that's when you layer on these disasters and when a COVID drags out that you really do get concerned about how do you focus on long-term resiliency and it's a challenge right now as we are coming out of COVID, hopefully. Uh, we're also seeing a huge surge in non-COVID volume. And so we're busy as can be at the hospitals, which on one hand is great, but on the other hand, got to try and find people a way to have a break and, you know, managing that. And, and uh, people are like, hey, I've done enough overtime over the last year for COVID. I'm not ready to do it now. And I completely understand that, right? And so we're having, a, you know, it, it does create some uh, definite uh, ongoing challenges. Got it. That's pretty amazing. I mean, we, we work with over gosh, 300 hospitals and health systems across the country. Less than 10% uh, chose not to do uh, layoffs or furloughs. or So it's, pretty, it's very rare what you did. 
Yeah, I've talked to a lot of colleagues around the country and, and I would have said about 10, 15% were kind of in the same boat as us. Um, and, you know, I, I now have the benefit of hindsight. I will tell you, this was not an easy decision at the time. It was not, you know, something that uh, I made without having some people, you know, differing in opinion, um, but uh, it was the right thing to do. And the benefit of hindsight says it most certainly was, given that, you know, hospitals have recovered. We think, you know, thanks to the federal government, we got a lot of support later in the year. At that point, we didn't know how much we were going to get. So we're making those decisions sort of blind. But all of those things together have made it to where, you know, I'm really glad we did that. And it helped reinforce our culture, which is, you know, honestly, every time we have a big disaster, we always work hard to say, let's leave this with a stronger culture than we had before, because we reinforce those aspects, not not have it somehow interfere with that culture. And we have a set of values we call I care, integrity, compassion, accountability, respect and excellence. And those are drilled and drilled and drilled. And they really were born out of a tropical storm 2001 that flooded the entire Texas Medical Center and took our main hospital completely out of operation for a couple of months. And we've just reinforced those each time, whether it was, you know, Hurricane Ike or Hurricane Harvey or now, you know, uh, the freeze or obviously COVID. Um, We've worked very hard to have those values really shine during the times of disaster. You are living in the great state of Texas and you have quite uh, quite an interesting governor who's often making headlines. Um, So in March 2021, Governor Abbott lifted uh, the mask mandate uh, in Texas completely, 100 percent. Uh, which was which was rare, right? Like many many governors have not done that yet. Um, how has this has this impacted Houston Methodist at all, or how do you think about how you know some of these state policies impact your health system? Yeah, so it's interesting. Um, you know, I think what you saw in early March was most of us looking at the numbers, um, particularly the pace of vaccinations, which I know we'll talk about. Uh, and saying, look, when we're doing the math and if the feds kind of are able to meet the commitment of the vaccine supply for us, um, you know, we can get the population to herd immunity. People have to get vaccinated, of course, you know, in a few months. And so really what we were saying and what I was saying regularly was give us 90 to 120 days. We need 90 to 120 days of, you know, continued masking, continued, very cautious behavior. And then we're going to see July 4th, you know, kind of, you know, Independence Day. And we're going to kind of see after that a lot better world, um, a lot better country, a lot better greater Houston region. And so we consistently messaged that. And what you ended up seeing at that point was, you know, obviously the governor decided to make masks not mandatory. Now, he didn't say don't wear masks. He said, I'm not making them mandatory anymore. And so whether it was the medical community, the business community, we all leaned in and said, okay, folks, we need this. Give us 90 to 120 days. We still need to do these things. And so it's interesting. I was having this discussion with our chief medical officer just yesterday. I go into the grocery store. I don't really see a change in behavior. You know, I, people in our area, at least our part of Texas, um, are wearing their masks by and large no differently because they recognize that this isn't done yet, but that we're getting close. Now, you know, we're easing up a lot of different things. There are exceptions to that um, for sure. And I see some big exceptions sometimes that are bigger than they were before. But by and large, people have recognized we'll keep the courtesy for each other. We will keep on doing that until we get enough of the population vaccinated, you know, which is a real success story because that is you know, rapidly increasing each and every day. Okay, so related to COVID, let's talk, let's talk about the vaccines. Uh, you, you mentioned those a couple of times now. So uh, you're one of the first CEOs of, health, of a health system in the, in the country to require uh, your staff to get the vaccine. Can you walk us through how you came to that decision and have there been any implications of it since you've made it? 
Sure. And, and, you know, I actually think we are the first hospital system. To my knowledge, we may still be the only, although I've gotten phone calls from a lot of uh, colleagues around the country at very major institutions, all of whom are expressing a lot of support and all of whom are, uh, you know, trying to figure out how to get there because it's not not necessarily a, a straight line journey. And I will tell you, my colleagues in Houston have been great. Um, you know, these are competitors slash collaborators, right, at other systems, and they're all intending to go there as well. It's just um, a matter of, of timing. So our tagline is leading medicine. Um, and we have really strived to lead in everything we do always. And we felt like this was the right thing to do. And it's important to understand our culture and our history uh, in order to kind of understand the context in which those decisions were made. So we uh, have that tagline of leading medicine first. I mean, secondly, um, I mentioned our values basis, our faith basis, and really a focus on the patients at the center of everything we do and a philosophy that says we are going to be the safest hospital on the planet or the safest system of hospitals on the planet. And so in 2009, at a point where very few hospitals had gone forward and mandated flu vaccine, we were one of the first handful of hospitals to mandate flu vaccine. And, and frankly, I drove that. And it proved to be a great thing that protected our patients. And in fact, it's now state law. Um, you know, it led to state law. So, you know, so we know it's the right thing to do. Um, I look upon the fact that we are in healthcare as a calling. Um, you know, it, it is uh, something we've been called to do to care for others that are human beings along with us. And I see that calling as something that is a very sacred privilege. You know, as a physician, you, you recognize as well the, the incredible privilege it is to be let into someone's life to understand the, you know, kind of the, the inner workings of who they are. And sometimes they're, you know, really the, the, the looking inside kind of who they are at a level very few people get to do and, and know those people and have a very intimate interpersonal relationship that's, that's very meaningful bidirectionally. And that's a real privilege. And what would be worse than a healthcare individual, a physician, a nurse, somebody else in the, who's working in a hospital system, actually giving a you know, infectious disease to a patient who subsequently suffered or, you know, God forbid, died as a result of that. That just is so antithetical to every pledge we took as physicians, as nurses, as others who work in a hospital system. And so we see it really as our sacred obligation to protect our patients. So when we look at it in that way, based on that history, it's really not a difficult decision. It's really then a decision of how and a decision of when. So what we started doing, honestly, probably close to a year, right? I mean, in May, June, we were really starting to actively talk about the vaccines and vaccine studies. We have from day one, Every time there was news, we would talk about the vaccines. This is what we're seeing. This is what we know. This is what we're going to learn. And very early on, probably nine, 10 months ago, started saying, we do anticipate just like with the flu, we will eventually go mandatory. We don't know when, we don't know the details, et cetera, et cetera. And so continue to amplify that message. So when the vaccines came out, you know, it was very clear, you know, that we had a very significant percentage of our team that were like, hey, let me get one now, you know, and obviously they're all running towards the vaccine, including almost all, you know, senior physician leaders and others, certainly all of our, uh, you know, ICU physicians and, and uh, infectious disease physicians and, and others like them. And so 
we had uh, done a lot of things kind of picking up on this uh, staff morale issue. We've done lots of things on the financial bonusing side to, to really you know, prop people up as well and recognize and acknowledge their work. And so in November, we did a surprise $500 bonus for every staff member. We called it a, a you rock bonus, uh, you know, um, just right before Thanksgiving. It was really amazing um, to do it with that timing. And so on December 31st, we announced that we were going to pay a hope bonus um, in the month of March. We did that because it was very clear at that point that we were going to be in for a pretty bad winter. And little did we know we'd have a freeze on top of that, right? But we knew we were going to see a, a very hard surge, very difficult to get through. But that, you know, if we could get more people vaccinated, we could get into the into the spring when we modeled it, we're going to be in a much better place. Turned out to be, you know, right on target. And so we said, we're going to pay you $500 as kind of a, a ray of hope to get through this winter. Uh, now there was a catch. You're going to have to be vaccinated to get that $500. So that was sort of a first wake up call a little bit of, hey, they're really serious. And it's interesting because, you know, obviously I got tons of, you know, gratitude. And anytime you give out a bonus, people are pretty happy, obviously. Right. But I had a fair number of people who weren't too happy about the fact that they were going to have to get the vaccine. We said, well, then your bonus is still optional. You know, I mean, you, you know, and so we put in some pop off valves with that. Um, you know, we have a uh, even with the bonus, we have a uh, religious exemption and a medical exemption. Um, we decided um, since the data wasn't there yet, we would allow a deferral. Not a not a, uh, an exemption, but a deferral for a pregnant individual, uh, and um, you know we paid that bonus out to you know twenty thousand plus staff uh, in uh, twenty third of March or something like that, and we're up to eighty five percent of our employees vaccinated. So then on uh, March thirty first, after we'd done that, um, recognized at that point vaccine was going to be widely available to everybody. The supply was going up huge, and really by the end of June, anybody who wants vaccine can get it, no question, I think, with the numbers coming through. And so we announced that we were starting the mandatory program. We had already done uh, the uh, new hires. And so we already, uh, you know, had been messaging that and really had had few problems with new hires that, that in order to be hired, you had to be uh, vaccinated. And we announced that management would have two weeks to get vaccinated. We had 100% of executives and 96% of management at that point in time. And uh, that due date's in a couple of days. And uh, then we will be moving on with about a little over six or seven week time window for the rest of our staff to get vaccinated. So far, that's gone very well. Uh, you know, because we've messaged it so much, people knew it was coming. It's not a surprise. I actually got more emails back at the time of bonus than I did now, but not everybody's happy about it. And I'm sure there will be some people who choose not to do that. And, you know, that's OK. That's well within their prerogative. Um, but clearly, with all those cultural underpinnings I talked about, if that happens, those are individuals who really don't fit our culture. And part of having a strong culture is knowing who fits it and knowing who doesn't fit it. And if, uh, you know, in a very scientifically uh, organized institution, somebody chooses not to get vaccinated and not to protect patients and put patients first, again, that's their prerogative. But uh, we're, we're not going to be the right place for that individual. And we hope that's a very small number, but I'm sure there will be some. Wow. Okay. So it was a very staged rollout, staged, even the communication uh, cadence was also staged. Um, uh, the, one of the, uh, you know, we, in, in March, 2021, we, we, we published a, a study about how COVID-19 has impacted nurses across the country. Cause you know, we're, we're a career marketplace for, for, for nurses and hospitals and health systems use our platform to hire permanent uh, nurses. And so one of the fascinating findings is that 30% uh, of nurses uh, had chosen at that time to not get the vaccine um, because 
you know, not providing a reason, you know, just saying I'm, I'm just choosing not to do it. Now, when it comes to uh, that cohort of, of, of healthcare workers that's going to choose not, that is choosing not to take it or may in the future not choose not to take it. When, what do you mean when you say that, um, you know, they're not going to be a fit for the culture? Does that, does that mean they could potentially lose employment at Houston Methodist if they don't get vaccinated? Or wh- what are we talking about in terms of the consequences here? You know, I'm, first off, you know, we're, we're obviously way ahead of those percentages that you're, you're mentioning, right? So, and it's still going up each and every day. Um, and we still have, you know, we still haven't put the, the, the final date out there for employees, although that will be released very soon. I mean, the bottom line is there will be a date by which one has to get the vaccine. And if uh, one does not get the vaccine, it's like any other uh, job requirement that's not being met. And so, yeah, there will be some people who may lose their jobs if they refuse to get vaccinated. I sincerely hope and pray that isn't the case. You know, we are leading, as always, with our values, as you heard and you mentioned. Um, We've been very purposeful and staged throughout this. We continue to be there. Will, there already have been inordinate amounts of education and educational opportunities around the vaccine, and there will be even more. And the benefit now of kind of this is sort of the last mile, right? You've gotten the 85 plus percent and it'll keep going up and management is 96 percent and, and keep and continuing to go up. It's 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 going to be pretty darn close to 100 percent. I can't tell you there won't be a single management person who doesn't stay with us. I just don't know that. Uh, for another few days, but you know, people are moving forward, and that is done very compassionately, consistent with our values, um, with a lot of integrity, and with a lot of scientific and medical, you know, oomph behind it. So our physician leadership uh, is really helping lead that and bringing in discussions and talking to people about why they're hesitant. This is not a simple mandate, and hey, do it or leave. It is very much uh, a, a purposeful process where we will we will work with people bring them through educate them etc but again some some that that may still not work at that point in time and we're, we're just going to have to see where that takes us there's usually a lot of uh, healthcare leaders listening to this pod- to this podcast and i want to ask a more general question more per- and a more personal question so you've been you've been incredibly successful you've had an, a, so far an amazing career and uh, my question isn't really about sex, success, but it's about failure. Can you tell us what, you know, one of your larger failures in, at work and, and kind of what did, what did you learn from it? You know, um, I mean, you know, my, I mean, I guess a couple, a couple of comments. One, there's kind of those things that you catch yourself doing more than once and you kind of want to slap yourself a little bit and say, why do I keep making that same mistake? I've gone through this, I mean, a number of times, but for me, it's oftentimes, you know, and I think a little bit sometimes comes from being that that physician because you always want to help people, right? And you always want to solve their problems. And sometimes helping someone solve a problem, maybe that this isn't the right place for them. And so uh, the mistake I find myself making more than once is what, particularly as I came into a new job early on in my career, senior, I mean, it was a, a CEO job of a small hospital. And, you know, is recognizing like day two, I had some issues with a couple senior leaders that needed to be addressed, but it took me a lot longer than day two to address them, you know, and there's a certain point where if you're going to set a culture of an organization where you're going to demand excellence, where you need a team, particularly as a senior leader, that's with you, that's got your back, you've got their back, you function as a team, you got to make those decisions quickly. And so that's kind of one of those things I'd say, you know, I, uh, I've learned along the way, you know, my, my first job was a joint ventured physician organization, which at the end of the day, we shut down. Um, so, you know, I'd hardly call it a successful job. Um, 
we built it and then you know the whole system sort of pivoted in terms of its strategy um, we recognized it wasn't the right strategy so there was some I guess honesty in there and integrity of saying hey even though I'm intertwined with this institution um, I don't think this is the right thing to do so I was part of ultimately some of the decisions that got made to sort of shift gears there you know and and, and now with the benefit of 20 some years hindsight you know it was it was it was just we just didn't have the infrastructure in place we have the same structure in place now 20 years later but we have electronic health records that are there we have a network of hospitals with you know all sorts of different things we didn't have back then so I learned a lot from that um, one of the main things I learned um, was put the organization before yourself and that's not always an easy thing to do um, kind of uh, you know um, I mean one could say I mean obviously our vaccine mandate is put the patient before yourself but also put the organization before yourself so we can have that safest organization anywhere well this was the same thing it's you know when ultimately the right answer was to shut this thing down but the question is is that going to affect you personally as a leader? You still have to do the right thing for the organization. You sort out the other things later. We had a, after that, I took over a small hospital that was a caddy corner to our main hospital and uh, started to turn it around. We were being successful doing that and uh, took a step back though and said, why do we have a hospital caddy corner across the street from our main hospital? And I went to my boss back then, this is, you know, 20 years ago. And I said, uh, we should merge this hospital in and basically it should cease to function, you know, as an independent hospital. Um, I was the CEO of that. I, that was a nice job. I had a nice title. You know, I wrote myself out of a CEO job. So, yeah, let's talk a bit more about this, the senior leaders, right? So that's something every every CEO, regardless of organization, you have to get the right senior leaders in place. Um, you mentioned, you know, maybe you were slower to make changes there in the past. Kind of, ha- what's your philosophy today when it comes to um, hiring and managing senior leaders? How, how do you, how do you think about that today after twenty years of experience? Yeah, I mean, that was obviously a circumstance where I was kind of needing to turn around an organization that wasn't uh, wasn't necessarily functioning that well. Um, and uh, that was kind of that little hospital I was talking about that ultimately we merged in. Um, I've got a great team now, and I will tell you one of my philosophies is, uh, you know, some may see this as a conflict, but I just said it's not at all, um, but it's stability. And one of the things that has served us very, very, very well during COVID is the stability of the senior team. Going back to my comment before, one needs to identify early on whether you're coming in and taking over a team or frankly, early on, if you hire somebody and three months in, they're not who you thought they were or they're not working out. You you need to manage that and you need to change that with them or you need to change that with them, obviously, in a different way. Um, fortunately, that's not a frequent occurrence, but we all know none of us are 100 percent at recruiting. But I have... Uh, I'm very privileged to work with a group of people, some of whom, you know, uh, were in the institution and I identified and promoted up, but, you know, a couple of whom I uh, transitioned as CEO a decade ago and, you know, inherit, inherited as, you know, I don't mean that to sound negative, I mean, but who were already in a role and who are here still because they're, they're such valued uh, contributors. But at the end of the day, when you're in a crisis or when you're dealing with strategic shift, Having people you know, you trust, and who, I mean, honestly, during COVID, where we spoke each other's shorthand, you know, and uh, where where you can anticipate where the other one is going or where somebody knows, you know, and you really deeply know people's strengths and weaknesses and, you know, okay, if I need this done, it may not be the traditional line of, of, of uh, the team that's going to do it, but I'm going to put it over here because that's the person who has that particular skill set and then I'm going to switch this over there. Those things matter. And so... Um, that long-term stability, I do think, has a value. Now, that doesn't say you don't ever have turnover. That's not what I'm saying. 
But, uh, but I think stability matters. The other thing is, and I've always said this is, look, at the senior most levels, you're jo- at any level, but especially the senior most level, your job is coach. Um, you know, especially like at a level like mine, I have all sorts of experts who report to me, right? I don't begin to know the, the, the amount of financial information my chief financial officer knows or the legal information my chief legal officer knows or the operational skill set that my operations team has, et cetera, et cetera. But I have to know enough to work with them, to understand, to hold them accountable, that they can communicate with me uh, effectively. And so I see myself as a coach, right? If I'm a coach and take a baseball analogy, maybe I played baseball. Most likely I did. So if I'm the coach, yeah, I played hospitals, right? I mean, if you kind of use that analogy, so I get the business. Um, But if you're the coach, I played baseball, but I might have been a catcher. I might have been a pitcher. I might have been a first baseman, but I've got to coach the whole team. Right. And the team is only as good ultimately as each individual performance and how that works together as a team. Um, and so, uh, you know, for me, it's about helping people be their best, about uh, getting them the resources they need, trusting in them to move forward and then getting the heck out of their way. It's about closing a door as a team and having tough conversations sometimes, um, you know, and making tough decisions. And then having all the debate and discussion in a professional way uh, and then walking out of that room and everybody's on the same page, even if everybody wasn't on the same page during the discussion. I mean, those are the kinds of things that, that are really critical when you're talking about a senior team. You know, I would say probably the most common coaching I'll do with newer people who report to me is at some point a few months in, it's not an infrequent conversation to basically say, hey, when you come into my office, um, you're a little timid and you don't, you know, you sort of beat around the bush when you need to bring me bad news. Um, And, you know, the thing you should be walking in the fastest to tell me is the bad news, right? I mean, the good news, if you wait a day or two, okay, that's fine. The bad news, I want to hear about it right away. And I don't want it sugarcoated. I don't want it beat around the bush. You know, come to me and let's talk about, you know, troubleshooting. I mean, heck, we have 26,000 employees, you know, we're a huge institution. Of course, there's bad news. And of course, there's problems. Otherwise, why are any of us employed? So, you know, all of those are things that I, I use every day, uh, hopefully, in, in working with a team. But at the end of the day, uh, you know, that team and that coach analogy, I think, are, are very, um, very accurate. So the last 12 months has been very difficult time for, for many people in the U.S. Um, but it's also been uh, there's also been some moments of incredible kindness and generosity over the last 12 months. So uh, to close here, the question I have is, what's a moment of, um, as you look back on your life, what's a moment of kindness or generosity that stands out to you? Like, what's the kindest thing anyone has ever done for you? Oh, gosh. Um, I mean, there's been so many things. I mean, I, you kind of started with COVID. So, you know, I'll talk personally. I think you're asking me personally um, in covid you know, a couple things stand out. I mean, there have been a number of people in the community just taking the time to write a note saying, hey, you know, we see how tough this has been on people in healthcare. And, you know, if you're asking personally how tough it certainly has been to to be in a leadership position and writing those notes. Um, one thing jumps to mind I was doing, uh, it was really very sweet and very, very heartwarming and um, was doing a virtual all uh, human resources personnel uh, talk about uh, a couple months ago, a couple hundred people has crossed the system, et cetera. And I do this, it's sort of a state of the system. I typically do it each year for our chief human resources officer. And I got on that, you know, this was part of their overall retreat and I got on and they had just before I got on decided to do one of these word bubbles 
Um, and, uh, you know, where you, where you on your cell phone, you type in some word and it'll show the size, you know, you know what I'm talking about right on the screen. And the word bubble was, Hey, when you think of Dr. Boom during this last year and his leadership, what words come to mind? And so they immediately tell me this and plop this on the screen without warning. I mean, I had no idea. And, uh, it was a very, um, heartwarming and, you know, emotional moment. I had to cat, I mean, I really had to collect myself a little bit cause it was, it was so, so nice and sweet. And obviously they, they said a lot of nice things. Um, so, you know, those kinds of things, and, you know, it goes back to what I was saying about adopting a unit. Oftentimes it's the soft things, right. That really make the difference and are going to be the memorable things. Um, you know, yes, we gave people bonuses or yes, we've given people a, a formal pat on the back, but you know, the more impromptu things or the very personal things, I will tell you the people who have been at the center of this more, on more than one occasion, I've just hunkered down and written handwritten notes to some people just because an email or a text is still just not the same for many people as wow, somebody took the time to write a card to me and just tell me, you know, what a job I've done. So we've done a lot of things like that. And uh, those have been uh, very meaningful. I mean, when I think of the course of my career, it's the people who have been there to mentor and who have, you know, been there to sometimes listen to me vent or sometimes listen to me, uh, you know, ask questions or spend a lot of time sort of overanalyzing some career move or some decision we've got to make. I mean, those people are so very valuable. Everybody needs to find and they're usually not formal. They're usually more informally developing, but needs to find those key people who believe in you and who are there for you, um, both in the good and the bad times. All right. Last question. Last question relates to Incredible Health and Houston Methodist. When I was initially introduced to you, um, your, your nursing leaders and your HR leaders embraced this innovation, right? And I was, it was pretty impressive, to be honest. <laughs> that, that, doesn't, that doesn't always happen across the country, right? And especially in healthcare, which is considered a, a more, you know, say, old school technology when it comes to t when it, uh, old school industry when it comes to embracing technology. What are what are your what is your philosophy and thinking on innovation, uh, things that drive efficiency or drive improvements for your health system? So we have what's called the the vision for our second century. So to put that in perspective, 1919 was you know we were born so 2019 was our 100th year and i came in as ceo in 2012 i've been with houston methodist since 1997 so i've been here 24 years now i'm in my 10th year as ceo and so you know looking for sort of how do you put a vision together how do you focus with the team you know within that first year came out with what we called the vision for the second century and lots of detail behind it but the the parent statement was six simple words unparalleled safety quality service and innovation safety first for a very good reason but obviously for answering your question here innovation very critically important about that in fact we reinforced that when the second century occurred and decided it's really got us on the set on the right course and so we've kind of doubled down on that so when we look back at our history we have innovation in our dna i mean dr debakey famously went and you know went to a fabric store and bought what turned out to be, you know, uh, Dacron graft and, you know, sewed it into a patient. I mean, it was a different time back then, but I mean, very much research and other things have been done. Uh, the Greenfield filter, many other things happened at Houston Methodist through the, through the century. But really about four or five years ago, we began to really see that um, the opportunity for digital health and for creative ways of rethinking traditional clinical and uh, operational and business problems was huge um, and that actually technology was getting to a point where it actually may 
finally uh, cut the cost of healthcare and facilitate healthcare because, you know, frankly, technology almost always increases the cost in healthcare. Certainly, medical technology does, but electronic health records certainly have up till now, uh, or certainly up till recently. And so uh, we built uh, our Center for Innovation. Actually, started by pulling together uh, a group of uh, informal leaders. Um, they had uh, gotten together, they called themselves DIOP, D-I-O-P, uh, and that is digi Digital Innovation Obsessed People. Uh, and we said, cool, okay, let's, let's formalize this. And then they wanted to change their name to something formal and I wouldn't let them. I was like, no, 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 everybody calls it DIOP, it, it's the perfect name. But I, I say that because we have built that and are continuing to build that culturally. And so we have a fail fast, succeed fast mentality. We basically uh, look for partners. We will pilot them very rapidly on a relatively small scale. And if they work, we don't go do sequential pilots. We just, we say go. And if they don't work, they go to our graveyard and we don't go forward with them. And Roberta Schwartz, who's our chief uh, innovation officer, she's executive vice president, runs our main hospital. Really, uh, I give a lot of credit for running that and for building that culture. So you experience that. It's music to my ears to hear you say that because, you know, when we took a look at this and put it in front of that group and said, hey, this looks pretty interesting, kick the tires. They kicked the tires real quickly, said, yeah, this could work, and they moved. Um, and that's really, um, again, music to my ears because it's the culture we have worked hard to, be, to create and to continue reinforcing. All right, fantastic. Thank you so much for your time today, Mark. Really appreciate it. Oh, it's my pleasure. It's a delight to be here. And, and thanks for helping us uh, on the nursing recruiting side. We really appreciate it. Yeah, it's so it's so cool that a hire just happened <laughs> just as we were starting our call. <laughs> that's, that's perfect timing. And, you know, we, we are always looking for great nurses. So any great nurses out there listening, uh, come on aboard. You'll be uh, one of the best hospitals around and one of the safest hospitals around. Well, uh, my my uh, my uh, unsolicited uh, solicitation here, I guess I'll do. Absolutely. There's so many reasons why Houston Methodist is a great place to work as a nurse. Thank you for listening to Incredible Healthcare Leaders. If you enjoyed the show, share the podcast with a friend and tweet at Join Incredible to let us know. We may give you a shout out on an upcoming episode. Remember to rate and review wherever you get your podcasts. Incredible Healthcare Leaders is produced by Eric Johnson from lightningpod.fm. Our theme music is from Purple Planet Music. I'm Imana Buzaid. See you next time.